0: One, what's your emergency? Five, four, three, two,
1: one. Welcome to the PIO Podcast, a place to discuss all public information related topics for police, fire, EMS, and local and federal government organizations. It was a good learning experience for a lot of us that, that social media is not real life. But we have to remember the media are very rarely a target audience, they're simply that conduit. Our words have impacts on individuals and it may not be positive. So just be, just being thoughtful and mindful of the words that we speak.
0: I think what's so interesting about this position too, and this job and this profession is that um, every one of us is looking for purpose. And when we find it here, that's it. To know is that a crisis for one is not necessarily a crisis for another. This episode is sponsored by the social media strategy summit the leading provider of social media education they host annual events designed specifically for government communications professionals like you to help you build and engage your communities through social media visit their website at socialmediastrategysummit.com to learn more and use promo code PIO podcast for 10% off of your registration Good evening. Tonight on the PIO podcast, we have Eric Holdman. Thank you for being on the show today, Eric.
1: Hey, great to be able to join you there, Robert.
0: So Eric, you have had a extremely, uh, detailed career in emergency management and public information. Can you tell us about your background?
1: Well, uh, briefly, and then this will come to bear is I actually had a 20 year, uh, military career as an infantry officer. Uh and part of that career uh included four years working with then Federal Emergency Management Agency Five, which is in the Midwest. I was at Short Cher- Fort Sheridan, they were in Chicago. And then I when I transitioned out of the military, I was out here uh in Washington State and moved into Washington State Emergency Management, where I spent uh time doing public education uh which is not public information but that had that function along with uh, training exercises eventually operations and then uh planning and from there I moved to Washington state uh here again it's the King County which is metro seattle but does that include the city uh emergency management I was there 11 years and did a few things more after that. Today, I'm the uh, Director of Center for Regional Disaster Resilience, which is five states and five Canadian provinces. And a little bit of a unicorn organization, not a lot of us around.
0: Wow. Okay. So several years ago, you had a presentation called The Media is My Friend. And, and I want right. to know why is it so important for PIOs to remember this and to work with the media as a friendship?
1: Well, the number one thing, if, if you treat Anybody, including the media, as the enemy and trying to shut them out, put them in a closet, you know, feed them scraps, whatever. They're going to reflect how you treat them out uh, by how you are, they'll treat you like um, in the same manner that you're treating them. So I, I say it's open. I, what I always did with the media, for one thing, is. I would, uh, give them my home phone, my cell phone, my work phone, and I would tell them I'm available to you 24-7, 365, except for leap years, so it's 366 <laughs> because I wanted them to contact me and either I could provide them information or, uh, send them to someone who would have reliable information because they've got to get the story. So do everything possible, help them get the story from, uh, good information sources.
0: Okay, uh, going backwards so you said you were in the military. You had a 20-year career in the military, correct? So how do you correct. think the military prepared you to deal with emergency management?
1: Well, in emergency management in particular, it, it did because of the disaster exercises and working in an operations center from that uh, perspective, crisis management, crisis response, the aspect of doing contingency planning. I was the chief contingency officer for the fourth army where we did military support civil authorities. So when does the active military come in? We worked with the national guard, which is a major player in any natural uh, disasters. States turn to them as a first source of specialized equipment, you know, high axle vehicles or helicopters or just plain uh, staffing, you know, manpower from that, that standpoint. So that, that was there. i I'll, I'll tell you, I don't know whether you have another question coming, but it did not prepare me to work with um, the public information officers. And in the Army, we called them public affairs officers because I didn't care one iota what they did or said or that because they had no bearing on the success of what I did. I, I had the title operations officer for anybody that's been in the military uh, at the battalion, the brigade division, Corps, and Army level. So I was used to uh, chucking and jiving and planning and uh, just being in the operations mode, and the media folks within the Army could get their story however they wanted, but it was not important to me, and I reverse that completely uh, once I entered into emergency management in the civil sector.
0: Okay, so you've, you you realize that you need to involve the media and you need to have a conduit to get to them, correct?
1: We'll say that again.
0: So you learned there that you needed to use the media to, and you had to have a PAO or a PIO as that conduit to get to them,
1: correct? Yeah, I, I, you know, I went 180 on this whole deal (laughs) because what I say is you can do the best job in the world on the civilian side, but if the story is not told, it's uh, uh you know it could be the reverse of the whole thing it's one of the reasons and actually the army learned that um in uh, the Iraq war you, you heard about media people being embedded with military units right. so that they could see the conflict and see what soldiers were and marines were going through so they also learned that lesson there but i i'd say and i spent a lot of time on this working with the public information officers to be able to tell our story to the media in all forms and fashions. Uh, and uh, PIOs have a difficult road to hoe uh, also on this. They're not used to working as a team, and I, I could talk more about that later. And, and, yeah, well, no, let's talk about it right now. You brought it up. Go ahead. Well, I you know, when you have a major disaster, um, you need more than one PIO. You're running 24-7. You have to uh, – and my estimation day the the social media is almost number one there, but you got to be able to get the information from the operation side so you can paint the proper, if you will, tactical picture of what actually is is happening uh, you You can use social media today to push out, but I think the other thing that social media is terrific for is monitoring it. We can get more into this later again. Um, to get situational awareness because now everyone has a camera as we know you can geolocate where that camera is uh, if you work at that so you know if you've got eyes on what actually is happening mm-hmm. and you can ignore the retweets because who knows where those are coming from but you can use citizens as sensors to tell you what's what's going on and then uh, you you will have news conferences and eventually you'll do a news, Release, but I don't think news releases are what they used to be anymore. Mm-hmm. And you gotta do all this stuff 24-7. And the issue for PIOs, is you have a PIO and, and generally you have one. Maybe there's two type of thing. But they, they do the research, they write the news release, they write the, the story for a newsletter, uh, they talk directly to the media. They're doing all those things as individuals they're not used to being integrated into a broader team that is doing social media. Someone's over here doing research. Someone's got the, the press room, uh, media briefing room. So they have to figure out how to work as a team also, because they're not used to doing it in that manner. So are you talking about a joint information Command? Is that what you're, I I am. And although I'll, I'll tell you, so it's JIC joint Mm -hmm. information center, um, We had a national level exercise. Back then it was called Top Off 2. And we did a real jick. I'm talking about a real jick. We actually recruited 80-some PIOs to work 24-7 over about a five-day period. And it was messy. Uh, a lot of the reasons it was messy is because people came in and worked only eight hours. But they were 24-7. And you didn't get any institutional knowledge built up. But that's how... It would work. You have lots of people flowing in and assisting and, uh, helping in, in that manner. So, uh, it is. And I think generally people don't have a JIC. I think they have a JIS. They, they, they'll say it's a, um, joint information system. And when you dig deeper, all they're doing is sending, uh, copies of their news releases to one another. And they're really not coordinating with one another. I've dug in on some of these. So, Tell me what your gist is. How are you doing that? Do you pre coordinate the news release and that? No. And so instead of a jick, it's not a jick or a gist, it's an ick. <laughs> it's an information center. There's nothing joint about it in my learning. I mean, pretty much not. I, the one place jick really can work well is oil spills, uh, where the Coast Guard's been there and they've got a fine tuned system and you have the responsible party. Kind of like the the spill out there in, uh, Ohio, there should be a JIC there where the industry is there and all the different federal agencies, uh, are there. Sometimes that's also gotten screwed up, but, um, that's the one place I've, I've seen JICs actually function.
0: So in a natural disaster, they work pretty well or in a disaster that is an accidental man-made disaster. But what about in, in a, um, uh, a man-made destructive disaster like a terrorist act or a, yeah. uh, you know, a bombing or or active shooter.
1: Well, I'll use the example of, um, deep oil or deep water horizon. Mm-hmm. That was the spill in the Gulf of Mexico. And I like the Obama administration. I thought they did a good job, uh, overall, but in that instance, Uh, I think as BP, British Petroleum, was a responsible party. And the administration felt they were being tarred by working jointly with British Petroleum, BP. And they pulled out. They stopped working together. So BP was a responsible party. They just should have been hand in glove with one another. And the Obama administration pulled out because they were getting a black eye by working with British Petroleum. And that's, that's a negative learning experience there, I think, that happened.
0: Well, I was researching your stuff, Eric, your background and the things that you've done. I came across uh, uh, while you were at the Port of Tacoma, you coordinated a maritime domain awareness project called First to Sea, and yes. that was using social media and citizen reports to improve common operating picture for the sector of Puget Sound.
1: Can you explain specifically what the project was? sir what well, uh, again, this is a great example of being able to leverage homeland security monies and this is back when the money was really flowing, so there was four hundred million dollars available nationally for maritime security and the Puget Sound region was getting and that's uh out here it'd be oh like eight counties bordering on the puget Sound uh for the maritime domain awareness and uh, we were able to get some significant funds, a, a couple multi-hundred-thousand-dollar grants. And I worked with then Pierce County Information Telecommunications, Linda Jarrell, if anybody knows that name. She's actually the IT director for the city and county of San Francisco now. And in here, I I found someone who had an interest in emergency management, understood that nothing's been done on this, and then brought the full talents of her team uh, to bear, to develop. And I was thinking, well, this is going to be an app and citizens would have it. But we went way beyond there that you didn't have to have someone sign up to be a reporter. You could just, because Twitter is an open system. Yep. Facebook is not, unfortunately. But Twitter is an open system. So you could search, draw a polygram or a uh, circle over an area and search for terms and like in an earthquake I'd be looking for collapsed, fire, trapped, uh that type if it's a maritime uh disaster I'd look for anything that would say sinking, you know, on fire uh and those would think those things would pop up on a situation map pinpoint where they are and again you're able to ignore the retweets. If it's a retweet and it's coming from England, that's way off the map. So you're only getting data from eyes on the target. That's why we called it first to see who's seeing it and then be able to report that. And people say, well, you can't try, I had a lot of pushback on this. I, I tell, Well, you can't trust this. Well, I always told my emergency operations center, operations people, remember the first report is almost always round wrong. And a lot of times that came from first responders. So, but if you got multiple tweets separately, not retweets, saying the same thing, I think you could probably take that information to the bank. At least you have a good idea where it's happening. Hopefully, there's a picture to go with it that illustrates what's going on, and then you can hone in, direct resources there, and develop first responder eyes on it from that standpoint.
0: Okay, and and what year was that project that? Project
1: done. Uh, let's see. So I'm thinking about when I got to the Port Tacoma um 2009. And so that was probably about uh, 2010, 11, 12. Okay. Uh, when I left there, we were still working it uh, from that standpoint. But I tell you, I, I've been on the bleeding edge. I've been on the cutting edge. This was cutting edge, not bleeding edge. Because it was federally funded, we could give this tool to emergency managers and public health officials, and they did not envision how they could use it. Even uh, the City of Seattle Emergency Management Director, who's highly qualified, nationally known, when I mentioned this to her, she said, well, you know, I don't personally use social media. Uh, Okay, yeah. Now, I understand. You might not use it, but here's a tool you guys can use, and you use it from two sides, both from the public information side, and you could use it for the situational awareness side. So it was a hard sell. And even today on my own podcast, um a few months back, I interviewed a college professor who looked at the use of social media uh during hurricanes in Florida, and it's still not being used by the majority of emergency managers. They 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 don't see the utility. I think there's a fear factor of they'll get in trouble with using it. So there's a world of possibilities still out there to be able to use it. It's amazing how that crowdsourcing, which is basically
0: what it is, is crowdsourcing information, it's still a battle in this day and age to get those that are the people in charge to say that's a value. Because they're the, the people on the ground there in the disaster are your first responders before the first responders even get there. You would think that they yeah. would have learned that after 9-11 when people were using cell phones and sending text messages from the tower, the two towers to let them know and, and, and where they were at. And you know, you would think they would learn at that point that crowdsourcing is important.
1: And I tell you, the first instance I can remember of this was the London bus bombings, if you remember yes. that. Um, I remember it because I was in taking a shower at 5 a.m. in the morning. And my wife came to the bathroom door and said, it's the sheriff. She's on the line. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. uh, not good when the sheriff calls me at 5 in the morning because we operated a very large uh transit system ourselves. And so we ramped up, find out what's going on. You never know. There's right. if it's not copycat, it's actually, it actually could be replicated in other cities right. and that. But one of the things that came out of that was uh, you had smartphones at that, that people, and people on scene were taking pictures, and unfortunately, they were also taking pictures of victims and victim faces mm. because they don't have the same thinking where media will never do that. But, you know, you got average citizens and they're taking pictures. And, of course, then they're broadcasting on their own Facebook channel and it's getting picked up and rebroadcasts right. on that. And news media would take that and block out faces and that. But you had live video coming from the scene to know what was going on.
0: Right, right. And and that would be something that would be beneficial to be in a, a fusion center or some kind of uh, operation center to, to be able to feedback right. to Whoever and London, it certainly has thousands of cameras. I think those are probably the, one of the mo- most camera cities in the in the world. I would think they're close to it. If it wasn't yeah, them, it's New York. Seattle.
1: But I'll I'll give another Seattle example though. They there was a maritime domain awareness project where they put some cameras along the waterfront to you know, monitor it from a secure maritime security standpoint. And you know, people saw those cameras, average, average citizens, and they went to the city council, and those cameras were ripped out because they're public cameras. I say you go into any Seven <laughs> Eleven, you're being videoed. But they didn't want you know the city to be videoing anybody. And, and you compare that to, like you said, the mm. London or other major metropolitan areas. Wow, well, you know, uh, it, it was a it was a step backward.
0: Obviously, yeah, that, that's unfortunate, but. In different parts of the country, that might be a different story,
1: you know. That's right. That's true.
0: All right. So, as somebody who has played such an influential role in homeland security and emergency management around our nation's ports, how is messaging so important when it, when you're trying to secure a port, or I'm sorry, secure grants? Let's take a quick break.
1: Now. to uh, to obtain a grant? Yes. Um well, I always say you you need to be aware what the grant criteria is. And that you can't always, you know, you may want to do something that's not in there. And so uh, Sometimes you can try and shave edges off of the square peg as you're trying to put it in the round hole. <laughs> but your best bet is read the grant, see what's allowed, where the areas' emphasis are. And then sometimes if it's all about terrorism, maybe you can do that project but still gain an all-hazards benefit from it. Because, for instance, that First to See was a terrorism-based funding grant. But, you know, it has all these other natural hazard benefits also. So if they're concerned about terrorism, then you got to focus on terrorism. Uh, But then a lot of times there's also an all hazard approach that can be made with those same uh, grant dollars and the project as you design it.
0: Okay, so let's talk about when you coordinated some regional public education campaigns. Can you go into some detail about some of those?
1: Yeah, and this again—it's a lot of this has been all funded by Homeland Security funds. This started after nine eleven. The first shot of money was about two thousand and three, and we're talking for King, three point two billion dollars nationally was being given to states to funnel down to local jurisdictions. And uh, King County, a population of not quite two million back then; it's over two million now. Uh, We got $5 million, and there were no strings attached other than use it on terrorism because the programs were not very sophisticated yet. Mm -hmm. Uh, They hadn't written all the the guidance on that. And I've always believed that you cannot have – government cannot do enough uh, to become prepared for whatever the disaster is if the general population is not prepared. You can't overcome their unpreparedness with government preparedness. They're just – too many of them and too few of you. Uh, even in King County, which we had a fairly robust staff of 20 people, uh, which a lot of local emergency managers in smaller jurisdictions would say wow uh, to that. Uh, I know like California, I, I think has like 500 or so at state level. So they have more resources uh, than that. But what you have to be able to do is I'm losing my train of thought here that what we were talking about. about public, public education program campaigns. Okay, public education. And so even the city of L.A., yeah, they got, let's say they got 150 staff or something like that. You still got, you know, 5 million people, you know, so you can't overcome it with that. So I've been a big proponent of telling the people this is what you need to. If nothing else, you need to be honest with them. One of the significant things for us in the Pacific Northwest, and Oregon started this and Washington picked it up after a big earthquake exercise in 2016 called Cascadia Rising, is nationally the message is to be prepared for um, three days, 72 hours. Here now it's two weeks because there's a recognition that not everybody can't uh, get to you, even within... Uh, a three-day time frame. I, the presentation I'm going to do one next week that I do today is called uh, "No One Is Coming to Help," and that's the planning factor they need to have because here with earthquakes, I call them "Come as You Are" disasters. There's no seeing the the hurricane developing out ten days, two weeks mm-hmm. out in the Atlantic. It's coming. Well, go buy plywood, store water stock up. on That doesn't happen. These these earthquakes happen, and you're either ready or you're not ready. But one of the things we did with the money, and we were still on the three-day mode there, um, we got some funding, some significant funding, and uh, we tried to do a, a building block saying, okay, what's our message, and who should we target on this message? And we worked with a marketing company to do some survey work, and we did listening sessions. We were behind the glass type of thing, watching average citizens talk uh, about this. And the marketing company said, well, who's your target market? And uh, we said, well, everybody, (laughs) because we want old people, young people, school children, preschool children, everybody to be ready uh, for a disaster. Well, marketing, you can't market to everybody. And through that studying we did, we ended up targeting Uh, women with children, that they cared more about the disaster preparedness side than anyone else. So that's when we uh, tried to message, we tried to message to women with children. And uh, the other thing we came up with, it was called Three Days, Three Ways, Are You Ready? And we didn't just hand out pamphlets, we bought airtime. We did a partnership with several media organizations, local media, uh, television stations, and uh, as a comprehensive radio TV uh, boards, we partnered with the Mariners baseball team and had a, a giveaway. It was called uh, Safe at Home. Anytime a Mariner scored, uh, there'd be a kit donated to someone in the stadium that was picked randomly. Um, and we also, another year, we had you know, Score 2, uh, which was a double base uh, type reward uh, for it. So we took more of a comprehensive... Uh, approach to it and we made sure that these public service announcements we did so tv ads uh, we wanted accountability we didn't want them showing at two in the morning one in the morning and we targeted local news as the time when more people are watching and would uh, hear that message okay and uh, through iterations of other grant monies we were able to expand that to Eastern Washington, also, and I, I could share a little bit. So I have a real quick. I have a question. You mentioned it a
0: minute ago about now it's planned for ten days, correct?
1: Uh, two weeks. Two weeks. Okay, so for Oregon and
0: Washington. Okay, yeah. so let real quick. It, there's a kind of a, a an event going on in in the mountains, in California, in Tahoe, and and so on, where you have people Is that that, that have its feet of snow multiple times in a couple days and five feet they're running out of of uh fuel oil they're running out of food they're running out of supplies there's no electricity and so on they can't get to the roads the roads can't they can't plow them quick enough and and here here is messaging that didn't get to them realizing this snow is going to come down it's going to keep coming down prepare you know and now you're saying two
1: weeks yeah well the issue always is high impact, low frequency events. You know, right. And it's, it's historic for them on this snow. You I uh, always, uh, always say, watch any newscast on a disaster and they'll find some old codger <laughs> uh, and they'll say, how bad is this? Well, I lived here all my life and it's never been this bad. But, you know, all your life in seismic turns is not very long. No, you know, it's so. Okay. All righty. <laughs> type of thing. and. And and it can be hard because people are not paying attention uh, to this. It's uh, again they they build where hazards are because it's very beautiful and they want to have a great view of the ocean. As and how close do you build to that cliff? And should you put a swimming pool on the edge <laughs> that adds a whole lot more weight to the the cliff? Right, right. Yeah, you know, they're just not thinking.
0: Right. So let's talk about you. You said there was another program that you guys were, you worked at it, I think you said in Portland?
1: No, well, uh, Oregon, Oregon started the entire uh, uh, two weeks. And I think that's the other thing, to be honest with um, the citizens, don't create false expectations. Mm-hmm. That's why I'm saying, I'd I say no one is coming to help. I just shared that with someone who's doing the the PR work, putting in a newsletter, and they said, okay, so... Well, eventually someone would come. I said, well, it's possible, but the planning factor should be no one is coming to work right. to help you. right? Yeah, do, do that. And this is a senior living uh, arrangement. And uh, yeah, there's a generator in a five-story building, but all these people have walkers or wheelchairs and fuel. Uh, we did a fuel study uh, just last year. Uh, and fuel's going to run out also. There's only two pipelines uh, running, and they run parallel with one. They're all one company that provides all the petroleum fuel, gas, diesel, and jet fuel for the west uh, western Washington and all the way down into Portland in that metro area there. And they, they looked at the thing, and their fuel storage tanks are all along the Willamette River, in an area that is subject to, more intense shaking—it's called liquefaction—and they think they could lose all their fuel storage in a major earthquake, and you wouldn't have any place to put storage or distribute it. Right? It's—it's a major, major, major deal. Okay. So we could lose communications, electrical power—you won't be able to get fuel for generators, and um, fuel is like water; it—it uh, it weighs. It's about eight point five pounds per gallon so we'll just helicopter it oh well, that's uh, no you don't have enough helicopters and they don't have enough lift and you gotta be able to distribute it when right. you do bring it in so
0: right okay your your focus groups and the survey stuff that you did to develop your direct out media outreach efforts what did you yep. what what was the outcome of doing all that what did you what did what did that come out with for you
1: well this is the Issue always within emergency management. It's, um, there's a book called We Don't Make Widgets, it's about performance management <laughs> and uh, it's about in government. Uh, the one area I, I did supervise, uh, our 911 program office, it wasn't an actual 911 center back then, we had like 16 911 centers in, in Kinkai, but we administered the technology and the, the dollars. And there was a criteria there they could be measured. Um, As how quickly is a call answered uh, when it starts ringing and then how long before the dispatch is is made. And then fire uh, departments and districts, they're also measured on uh, time to arrive on scene. You know, how how many minutes from, from dispatch to arrival. And that's a standard they're looking to meet. So you've got some of these measurements that can be done. But when you talk about emergency management, how do you show... You're more ready today than you were last year. right that, that, It's very difficult uh, to measure it. I, I say we're, we're just chewing on that elephant one, one bite at a time. Uh, and you have to use uh, a, another aspect that they talk about just using PIO and that use events to push your message out when people are listening. Uh, on sunny days and something as bad is happening across the country, then use that opportunity to message when people might be listening again. And an, an old Red Cross study said people have to uh, hear a message 20-some times before they take the first uh, action at all. So uh, use every opportunity to get the message out. And I'd, I've always been a, a big believer, and people don't, emergency managers don't take advantage of this. And there aren't as many newspapers, but write an opinion piece, an op-ed, for your local paper about preparedness when, you know, there's a Katrina, when there's a 9-11, when there's something on a hazmat spill, write about it and include individual preparedness messages uh, in that. They'll, they want something that's current. So be quick and be, proactive in giving them information. It, it does you no good to send that in six months later. Right, that, right. That, that incident. You know,
0: I te- Eric, I do that. I used to do this when I was working in, a, in my other department years ago. Anytime there was an active shooter event, I was always putting out uh, afterwards. I would always put out um, a video and talk about the uh, run, hide, fight, the, the standard back at the time um, exactly. and reminding people that this is what you do and I, I got criticized a couple of times by some people in the community and then also by some some people, uh, political people within the community because uh, some politicians said, well, you're, you're you're scaring the public. And I said, no. I said, the only way you can raise awareness is for them to be reminded that this is what they do because when that active shooter happens, if you don't mentally have yourself prepared for it, you're not going to be able to react with those three things we're in high fight. You're going to freeze.
1: I agree. I agree. Totally. And I understand what, you know, I worked for a port and it's uh, doing security and the director would ask, Eric, why do you always have to be talking about security? And I'll say, well, I am the <laughs> security director. <laughs> that's, that's what you hired me for, right. you know? That, but they, you know, uh, you make people nervous, and I, I understand. You're talking about stuff that likely will never happen. Well, but when it does happen, uh, they'll be better prepared.
0: You know, you always hear, I, I, you always hear that the news that it said, "Well, uh, the w- we never thought it would happen here, but today it's it happened to us." And I mean, yeah. I don't know how well, many times I, I've heard I, that.
1: I've got the four stages of denial. I can share with Go you. Ahead. Right Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. Number one is it won't happen. Uh, number two is if it does happen, it won't happen here, which is what you made me think about it when you said. And then we had the Nisqually earthquake, which was shook for 40 seconds. It was back in 2001. And that is if it does happen and it does happen here, it won't be that bad. That was not the end of the world. I mean, it's significant. 6.8, I think, was the final resolution. And then the last one people will use to dismiss doing anything. If it does happen, does happen here, does happen to me, there's nothing I can do about it. But I, then I tell people that even in a catastrophic disaster, take the Tohoku, um, uh, Japan tsunami and earthquake that happened there, only about 2% of the population actually dies in a catastrophe. So don't plan on being dead you Need to be planning on being alive, and uh, the difference is what you do beforehand, uh, will make the difference of what your comfort level is after that disaster has impacted uh, the region. Well,
0: I appreciate you bringing up the four stages of denial because that
1: it's so no, true. No. So, I want to just share one other Go thing ahead. is you can because you brought up active shooters, just the Uvalde shooting. Yep. That happened there. Of course, the response. A lot has been said about. No, response, I don't even want to talk about that. But, but think think about the PR disaster that followed mm-hmm. that whole thing. Multiple spokespeople talk about different aspects. It was uncoordinated. There was nothing joint about that whatsoever. Um, and then, as you know, things get twisted. You know, you get more and more information. There's there's just no coordinated flow. So. Watch those events, learn from them. Sometimes um, there used to be a motivational poster of a ship sinking. And it said, sometimes um, these types of events uh, are only there to motivate you to do something different. <laughs> you know, so right. learn from other people's mistakes. Absolutely. And look for them. And,
0: and, if, and if we're not looking at, as a PIO, and, and I've been in this field now, I've been in law enforcement for 20 years, nine years almost now and a PIO for 16 years now. And one of the things that, that I've always done is gone back and look at, well, how did, why did they do that? Why did they say that? Or why didn't they say that? And what yeah. could they have done differently? I've, I always said that. And, you know, sometimes I've tried to break down some incidents in, in my mind and say, what would I have done differently? And I think we do ourselves a disservice if we always think, Again, that stage of denial, it's not going to happen here. Let's take a quick break.
1: Did you know that you can change what you taste by what you hear? So while well, I'm thinking of it here today, uh, a major focus of what I've worked on is public-private partnerships and regional, especially when it comes to critical infrastructure in my current job. But I always say if you want to know if an individual jurisdiction has taken a regional approach to how they function uh, in concert with their neighbors, look at their maps. If their map just shows them as an island and there's no other territory that, that we're not talking about Hawaii here. Right. But, the, you know, there's nothing north and nothing west or east or south. That's an indicator to me that they're not thinking about how do they function together as, as a region. And too many times we operate in our own jurisdictional box. And we should be able to think broader than that. Know your neighbors. Right. Know the PIOs on the other side street not just by name but get go have a cup of coffee with them and um when there's an opportunity even a small one to go help them and i go do it because you'll build relationship and the big thing that happens with that is you build trust and then you build a, a bigger team and uh, this is a constant process that you have to work out.
0: i agree uh eric is there a question i should have asked and if so how would you have answered it
1: Oh, well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, all right. Um, <clears throat> well, I would say I'll, I'll go back to talk about how do you build trust. Uh, I, when I g- went to King County, I found out everybody hated King County. <laughs> and so I went to a trust workshop. And, you know, you go to workshop. What do you, but I came away learning something out of that that stuck with me for over 30 years now is you do not build trust between organizations. You build trust between people. So you have to establish that one-on-one individual relationship and trust does not come automatic. I, I, I say one way that you can do that is start just sharing information with the other people. They'll say, well, yeah, we're good. We don't need anything. But if you start sharing information that's helpful to them, They'll appreciate, they'll start sharing information with back to you because you're setting the example. And then you can invite them to do planning. I always say, you know, uh, the goal is not to create the plan, it's actually get people together and do the planning and form the relationship, build the trust, uh, because always the incident is a lot different than what you anticipate. The pandemic would be a great example. We did a lot of pandemic planning, but COVID uh test kits were never something we planned for. We never anticipated developing a vaccine that fast and setting up vaccine uh, you know, stations, immunization type things. So you always have to uh be prepared to react on the fly. I'll, I'll give you a quick example of that and this is old old style. We had a wildfire uh going as threatening uh, the city of Leavenworth, which is not where the prison is, this is a Bavarian-type town uh, just over the mountains in the Cascades, <clears throat> and people had been evacuated and they had no idea if their properties or they lived out of state if their properties okay. And uh, a couple of people working say, "Hey, what we could use is a citizen hotline." that would gather information where they could all call in and we could answer the question. And, you know, we started with five people, then we had 10 people. Then we had 30 people on a shift at one time, and you have people gathering information, making maps. And it was a huge success because there's some place they could call, talk to a human being, and they could be given information that, well, the fire, you know, did burn over that air. We don't know the status of your home. We didn't have all the GIS mapping drones and all that. But we could tell them, no, the fires never reach. And really eased a lot of people's worries because we were able to give them information. And now a lot of that can all be done technologically with uh, social media and uh, public maps and websites. But uh, be creative. And uh, when somebody comes up with an idea and you think it might work, run with it.
0: Right. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, Eric, I'm going to switch this to some rapid fire simple questions. Are you ready? Yes. Texting, I'm ready. Texting or
1: talking. I'm still a talker, but the next generation is texting. Coffee or tea? Coffee. Adult drink of choice. Decaf.
0: Decaf. There you go. Adult drink of
1: choice. I don't drink, so it's decaf. Okay.
0: What would be a superpower if you had one?
1: Oh, I've already identified this. Be able to remember the name and face of anybody I ever met. I just turned over thirteen thousand contacts, and I've looked at my daughter-in-law and not being able to remember her name. So it's a problem. <laughs> Do you have a pet, sir? Ah, uh, no the the dog's dead and the kids are gone. But it was Mackenzie, great great pet Airedale. Okay, is there a book or author who had an influence on you? John Maxwell is a is a uh, great leadership off, author. He's got like um, oh, I'm trying to twenty one <laughs> irrefutable traits of a leader something like that. But a book I really love is it's called uh, "Failing Forward," and it's all about how do you learn. We we talk about lessons learned, and most mm-hmm. of the time they're not learned. You know, they're lessons observed from that standpoint. And the thing, it's a small book that I remember from lessons from that, that I I took with me is the lessons will continue to be taught until they're learned. So, you know, learn them quick. Yeah. What else you got? Ask permission or beg forgiveness. I I learned that a long time ago. (laughs) Just do it. Yep. Do it. Don't, I, and I was a at will employee, but I learned if I asked permission, they wouldn't understand, especially this regional stuff. They Why do we want to do that? Uh, I'll I'll just go do it and they'll be happy I did it. That's that's true. If
0: you could have coffee with a historical figure, anyone, who would it be?
1: Oh, Abraham Lincoln. Oh, that would be because I think he he had troubles. I mean, he did not. That was a pretty tough time for him and leading the nation and when to move and change tactic and selecting a military commander who could finally win. He should have had some sleepless nights. I'd love to pick his brain.
0: Final thoughts. What key points would you like listeners to take from the interview?
1: Say that one more time. So
0: final thoughts. What key points would you like the listeners to take from this interview?
1: We we all are making a difference. And I I tell you, one of the things I learned is operational readiness is – Perishable; it has a half life of you know a week or something. So you have to continually work at this. There's been so much transition of people, and there's so much movement in the workforce. The institutional knowledge is just changing so fast that in, invest in the next people coming up because they're going to have to carry that torch. And one of the things I say is, you can become immortal. If you share everything you know with other people, it doesn't have to die with you. Pass it on. And hopefully the people you pass it on will pass it on to the next generation. So share everything you know, and hopefully we'll all be better off for it. Great. How can people best reach out to you or if they want to connect or, or learn more? Well, you could just Google my name, Eric, E R I C, Holdeman, H O L D E M A N, and you'll find I've got a personal website, ericholdeman.com. I've got a, a blog that I've been doing since 2007. That's disaster-there's Hyphen. a dash in there, disaster-zone.com. And then there's a podcast that's available. Uh, it's great to be your guest here because typically I'm interviewing <laughs> other people and just search for disaster zone there and no hyphen.
0: Excellent. Eric Holman, thank you very much for coming on the show. I appreciate it.
1: Well, thank you, Robert. It, it's been a, a fun time to be able to interviewed, be interviewed. And I look forward to uh, sharing this interview with others on my blog when you send me a link.
0: Excellent. Thank you, sir. Have a great night.
1: All right. Thank you.
0: That's all for this week. We hope you enjoyed this episode. On next week's episode, we have Sarah Campbell from Frederick County, Maryland. Another huge thank you to the Social Media Strategies Summit for being a sponsor of the PIO Podcast. Join their First Responders Summit this April or their Government Summit this May. Learn more about confirmed speakers and programming at socialmediastrategiessummit.com and use promo code PIOpodcast for 10% off of your registration.
1: We hope you enjoyed this episode. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast to get notified of the latest episode. If you are listening on a platform that allows reviews, please give us a review. We appreciate any review, good or bad, It helps us improve on each episode. Until next time, be safe.